in the midst of the 1400s, a man whose name has been lost to the flow of time, put quill to parchment to produce what is today the oldest surviving manuscript from England entirely dedicated to the art of summoning spirits. Today, scholars refer to this practice as ritual magic due to the complex and lengthy rituals required to perform the art. One who wished to undertake such a perilous spell would first have to purify the body and spirit through abstinence, fasting, prayers for forgiveness and protection. Some rituals required that the summoner produce a magical incense by crushing and grinding together particular herbs, spices, gemstones, and parts of animals, which would then be burnt during the summoning. The weather must be suitable, the day of the week must be correct, and the stars must be tracked. Such timing was crucial for the success of the ritual. When the magician was purified and the stars aligned, he went into a lonely and private place, perhaps out of town, perhaps a room in his home set apart and dedicated to the purpose, and draws about him a circle filled with elaborate designs, words of power, names of God, and magical symbols called sigils. When all was ready and the correct hour struck, he lit his incense. The space seemed already changed as its alien scent wafted about him and spiraling tendrils of smoke danced in the dark. He breathes in to begin, but the breath catches in his throat. His hand darts to his chest, and, relaxing, he smiles at his own folly. Of course he hadn't forgotten. The protective amulet was safely secured around his neck. No spirit could deny his will, so long as that remained in place. He breathes in another heady breath, and begins. Conioro te, spiritus, zaim, per nomina tua, ubicumque sis in mundo, per patrem, et filiam, et spiritum sanctum, et per ista nomina sacra dei, agla, yahoi, tetragrammaton. you, spirit, zaim, by your name, wherever you might be in the universe by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by those sacred names of God, Agla, Yahweh, Tetragrammaton. On and on the invocation goes. He holds his book before him, half knowing the words by heart. But the slightest syllable could render the spell ineffective, or worse, himself vulnerable. Besides, his book of magic, his grimoire, was ritually sanctified and had a power of its own in these rituals. At last the recitation was complete. He looked up. The darkness had drunk deep from the incense 
already half giving substance and form to the shadows. He felt a thrill as the spell appeared to be taking effect, but, glancing down, he froze with terror. The circle. He had not properly closed the line of the circle. Welcome to Arcane. I am Samuel Gillis Hogan, a PhD researcher focusing on the history of magic. And this is episode one, Circles and Incense, Medieval Ritual Magic. Unsurprisingly, people were often reluctant to put their names on spells to summon demons in the Middle Ages. But this does not mean that those who copied and owned these rituals are completely unknown to us. Studying the spells and books of magic reveals a great deal about their writers and practitioners, if not their names. So who were these magicians? In truth, the possibilities are limited. Most medieval summoning spells, along with other learned texts, were written in Latin. Medievalists estimate that 2% of medieval people could fluently read and write Latin, and they were generally priests, monks, and university scholars. Today, Priests seem an unlikely group to summon demons. But for those who, after years of study and dreams of attaining high office, found themselves as lower-level clergy with no hope of ascension through the ranks, ritual magic offered both a tool for their ambition and an outlet for exercising the power that their learning and holy office had promised them. Monasteries, removed from the world, containing vast libraries, and monks with time in which to copy manuscripts, were a prime location of ritual magic practice and the copying of spells. So too were universities. In fact, while always officially condemned, there appears to have been a considerable degree of leniency towards ritual magic. In 1504, students at the University of Krakow had learnt enough magic to attempt to perform necromancy, which in this period referred to demon-summoning ritual magic. Unfortunately for them, they were caught. It is unlikely that they were the first to do so, and they certainly were not the last. According to the university records, in 1522, a book was found among the students called the Speculum Necromanciae, which in English means the Mirror of Necromancy. Despite these dark, extracurricular activities, when the university records even bother to report the punishments, the students were given a mere slap on the wrist, a manageable fine, 
and they were sent on their way. Students in England had even less to fear. For while the word cleric generally refers to a religious leader and member of the clergy, in the medieval period, the term cleric, or its derivative clerk, became applied more and more widely, often referring to any scholarly person with some command of Latin. Any student trained at a university would be considered a cleric in the eye of the law, even if they did not go on to hold church office. And a benefit of being a cleric was that, from the 12th century onward, instead of being tried for an offense in the secular courts, ruled by kings and nobles, which often meted out brutal and capital punishments, they were instead tried in the bishop's court, which gave much milder sentences, frequently acquitted the accused, and never put people to death. Priests, monks, university scholars, these were the primary medieval practitioners of ritual, astral, and learned magic in general. Their impact on magic, and how we think of it today, cannot be underestimated. They are, after all, why we imagine magic users to wear robes. But if these clerics were the ones summoning and consorting with demons, one might ask, then were they secretly devil worshippers who were against Christianity? In November through December of 1347, the priest Etienne Pepin was pulled out of the once lonely village of Châteauneuf-de-Rondon in the mountainous landscape of southern France and was brought before the ecclesiastical court in Monde, where the bishop Albert Lourdes presided over his trial. You see, Etienne was a magician who had sought out many books of magic and become learned in the art. He struck up a strong friendship with Guérin d'Apouchet VI of Châteauneuf-de-Rondon, the head of a very old French noble family, which has since died out. And Guérin hated the Bishop of Monde. At the behest of Guérin, Étienne placed a curse upon the bishop by fashioning a wax figure of him, upon which Étienne engraved the bishop's name, along with those of about half a dozen demons while reciting a magical incantation. He then, with the powers he held due to his priestly office, baptized the wax effigy and stowed it safely away in the wall of his noble patron's castle. While activities such as these may well have happened frequently during the medieval period, leaving little or no evidence, Etienne's activities were brought to light, and the bishop was not pleased. While learned men were often allowed to pursue their sorcerous activities with impunity, Etienne had struck too close to home with a magical attack against a bishop. On the 22nd of December, Etienne's sentence was given. 
but he was not satisfied with the result, and further pursued his case in court. The results of his efforts have been lost, or have not yet been found. However, in his trial, he mentioned one of the books from which he had learned his magical arts, and gave a detailed description of it. That book was the Liber Iratus, often known as the Sworn Book of Honorius, and copies of that grimoire are housed in the British Library's archives to this day. Only three known copies of the Sworn Book of Honorius have survived, all of which are from England. One of these eventually found its way into the ownership of John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I's court magician. But the earliest copy is in the manuscript catalogued as Sloan 3854 and dates to the first half of the 14th century. It therefore may well have been written in England while Etienne held his copy in France. The sworn book does not only contain spells, however, but also instructions on who should do magic, revealing the perspective of the priests, like Etienne, who read and used the spells it contained. According to the introduction of the sworn book of Honorius, demons came together and decided to corrupt and weaken humans by turning them against the things that most helped them. So the demons went forth into the bishops, cardinals, and even the Pope, instilling pride in them and turning them against the noble art of necromancy, thus causing them to persecute the noble magicians. But it assures the reader that the church elites had only found and destroyed the least of magical secrets, and, thinking that they had destroyed them all, left the strongest and true art to lay safe and hidden in the hands of the wise magicians. Of course, the book assures us, the magicians could easily have destroyed all their persecutors at a word to the spirits that they commanded but they would not stoop to using their power in such a way, since it would lead to more evil and bloodshed. So they suffered in silence, preserving their magical arts quietly among themselves. The book claims that a council was called of all the master magicians, 811 of which came together from Naples, Athens, and Toledo, places which were strongly associated with learning and magic during the medieval period. And they elected Honorius to write the sacred book of magic. It claims that Honorius, guided by the angel Hocroel, wrote the sworn book, preserving the most potent of the magical arts. Now, it is unlikely in the extreme that such a council took place, or that the practitioners of magic were ever so organized as this text would imply. But there did seem to be informal networks of scholars 
with an interest in magic, and ritual magic texts were passed on among them. Etienne, for example, gained his copy from an alchemist while visiting the court of King James III, King of Majorca in Perpignan. The sworn book's introduction is not revealing because it tells us about the realities of this group, but rather because it shows us how they saw themselves. They were clearly aware that the practices in these texts were illicit and condemned by their superiors in the church, but it does not indicate that the magicians were against Christianity. They believed that church authorities were the ones deluded by demons, that ritual magic was a gift given by God to humans so that they might summon demons, control them, and force them to do something productive against their will. In fact, the author of the sworn book agrees with the church elites, condemning those who would worship or give sacrifice to demons, and saying that this is what pagans did. These were Christian magicians, and they saw themselves as godly and in the right. They were, after all, priests, monks, and university-trained clerics themselves. These men comprise what Dr. Richard Kiekeffer has dubbed the clerical underworld, a motley group of malcontent lower-order clerics who often tried to use magic to claw their way up the social ladder in royal courts and noble households or used their learning to explore the God-given power of these arcane arts. The Liber Iuratus states that no evil or impure person is able to practice magic successfully, and so the church elites were deluded to think the art evil. The sworn book is so called because it demands that its reader swear an oath to preserve the sanctity of magic, and it gives instructions intended to keep the secrets from the wrong hands. The book was never to be given to children, or women, or non-Christians, or unworthy men. Only adult Christian men were allowed to receive the book, and only after their worth had been tested over the course of a year no more than three copies could be made from any one manuscript of the sworn book, limiting its spread. Upon the death of the magician, he was allowed to give it to one of his students, or, if no other magician could be found, he was to be buried with the book. And lastly, both master and student must swear to die before admitting that they knew the secrets of the art, or revealing the names of any other practitioner of it. So you see, this was not some rebellion against Christianity, or a devil-worshipping subculture within society. It was, in fact, fundamentally Christianized magic. But even if the magicians saw ritual magic not as worshipping demons, but as enslaving them to do the magician's will, 
then how was a human able to perform such a feat? How was this magic supposed to work? To the clerics who practiced necromancy, demons were infernally evil fallen angels who rebelled against God with Lucifer in the dawn of the world. They were incredibly ancient, cunning, and cruel. Horror stories sometimes accompany demon summoning rituals, tales of what could happen if the magician made even a slight mistake in the conjuration. But the theory of spirit summoning spells is really quite simple. The magician was to channel the holy power of God to command the spirit. A demon summoning ritual has three main functions. It summons the demon, forces it to do the magician's will, and protects the summoner from the being he conjured. In preparation to perform the ritual, the magician had to complete an often extensive period of fasting, sexual abstinence, and prayers to ritually purify himself and any objects he might use in the conjuration. Specific astrological times and conditions are required as well. When all was finally ready for the ritual, the magician would draw a complex circle filled with specific magical sigils and names of God to produce a protected space into which the demon would be unable to enter and the magician could safely stand. Some spells call for specific incense to be burnt to either draw the spirit or to protect the magician. Then he would step within the circle and begin to recite the long invocations of summoning. As we saw in the incantation at the beginning of this episode, the demon was bound using its true name and by the power of God that the magician was worthy of channeling due to his state of ritual purification. These invocations are long, repetitive, and worded with legalistic precision to bind the spirit and force it to come visibly before the magician without lying to, disobeying, or harming him. Once the incantation was complete, the demon was supposed to be forced to follow the magician's commands. And here's where things get slightly less pious for these learned and godly men. While the preparation for a spell required purification so as to acquire God's grace. The objectives of many demon summoning spells were often decidedly more worldly. Demons might be summoned to torment a woman until she was forced to sleep with the magician to gain relief. They might be conjured to gain earthly treasures like gold, to lay a curse as Etienne did, or to ensorcel superiors into favoring the magician, which was particularly useful in noble courts. Yet it was not all so greedy and debaucherous as this. Demons were also summoned to teach more magic or other arts 
languages, and sciences to the summoner. They could be called to reveal secrets of the past, present, and future, or to produce illusions and wonders at the magician's command, all of which I examine in more detail in other episodes. Sometimes the magician did not use ritual magic to summon demons at all, but to call down angels to teach and guide him, or to reveal a true and direct vision of God while still alive. In spite of their surety and assurances that magic was a divine gift to the wise, perhaps some of these magicians had reason to fear, on occasion, in the dead of night, when those nagging thoughts rise up in the quiet and shadows. For those who were against magic often made a particular claim about spirit summoning. They argued that even if the summoner intended to summon an angel, or some other type of spirit, that which appeared was actually a demon. And, despite their protestations, despite their appearance of being bound and constrained by the magician, despite their attempts to frighten or tempt him out of the circle, they were not truly bound at all, but merely playing along, slowly ensnaring the magician into mortal sin. Arcane is released on the first and third Wednesday of each month, weekly in October. The manuscript referred to and quoted at the beginning of this episode is catalogued as Manuscript Rawlinson D-252 and is housed in the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. The English translation is my own. If you wish to learn more about this topic, I recommend reading Forbidden Rites by Dr. Richard Kiekeffer, Unlocked Books by Dr. Benedict Lang, Conjuring Spirits, edited by Dr. Claire Fanger, Magic in the Cloister by Dr. Sophie Page, The Sworn Book of Honorius, with translation and commentary by Joseph H. Peterson, or The Transformations of Magic by Dr. Frank Clausen. Further books and articles on the subject can be found in the bibliographies of those works. Whether ritual magic was employed to summon up demons, call upon jinn, draw down angels, or bring forth fairies from their hidden realm, it was a practice that for centuries upon centuries most people understood as real simply a part of how the world works. And this was a very real part of our history. <laughs>